August 6th? 1651, long time ago. Francis Fenelon was born in a small village in outside of Paris in France. After he went through Catholic school, became a priest, he was assigned to the poor and the sick and would often find himself in roles working among the unruly of society that no one else wanted to do. He learned the virtues of patience and kindness and compassion. And following the edict of Nantes, after it was lifted, persecution spread to the Protestant believers, throughout the Protestant believers. It provided protection for Protestants living in a Catholic, predominantly Catholic country. But once that edict was lifted, many of the Protestants, actually the bankers, the financiers, fled the country of France. And it was said by historians that the greatest single blunder ever committed by a reigning monarch in the history of Europe Louis XIV was that monarch. The country fell into a serious financial decline. Fenelon was called upon to actually work among the Protestant Huguenots, the Huguenots, that actually to try to bring back some peace and stability in the country. He was so successful that he caught the eye of the king and was given the greatest honor of any Frenchman He was asked to be the mentor, the tutor of the future reigning king after Louis XIV would die and pass on his his monarch to another. Unfortunately, this young boy was a terror, impossible to train. And yet Fenelon proved to be successful. So successful, this, this young king, for many that believed in Christ, that had faith in this country, in this period of time, believed that he would change the future of France as a result of his newfound faith in Christ. And yet, unfortunately, he died prematurely and never took on the monarch. Yet, Fenelon was so successful that he worked himself into the inner courts of Louis XIV and became a mentor, a spiritual guide for many living in the country at this period of time. Louis XIV saw this appreciated it. It said that his charm personality and his devotion to Christ, his humility, his unifying effect in these regions was so powerful, he had this magnetic personality. His devotion to unity, his compassion earned him the right in, these, in this inner circle in the monarchy. It was said of him It was difficult to take one's eyes off of him. He possessed a natural eloquence, a grace, a finesse, a most insinuating yet noble, appropriate courtesy. He was a man who never sought to seem cleverer than any of those with whom he conversed, who brought himself insensibly to their level, putting them at their ease and enthralling them so. His eloquence was winning rather than vehement. It says that he reigned as much through the charm he had on society as by the superiority of his talents. What a remarkable thing to say about somebody. That he charmed society 
by, by the magnetic personality and his devotion to Christ. It says that I had seen him adapt himself with a short space of time to all classes, associating with the great and using their style without any loss of Episcopal dignity, and then turning to the lowly and young like a father teaching his children. He could work with all classes of people, and he left an impact in France in the 1600s. His name was Fenelon. What could possibly form a man into such a powerful, influential culture changer of his generation? I would argue that aside from the historical event of the incarnation, crucifixion, and resurrection of Christ, the most powerful historical event that transforms individuals into culture changers is the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. And we find this Holy Spirit unleashed in the book of Acts. And we're about to start a new series about forward momentum, unstoppable forward momentum, because of this one, the Holy Spirit, that empowers and emboldens believers to change their culture like Fenelon did in the 1600s in France. And I believe it can happen over and over and over again. And we're going to study the powerful movement of the early church through the presence of the Holy Spirit in the lives of believers that impacted in the Roman era this, this church, this dynamic community empowered by the Spirit began to move forward into the Roman Empire. Churches spread. Powerful community began because of this one, the Holy Spirit. The book of Acts is all about the presence of the Holy Spirit. And we're going to look at this Holy Spirit uh, in the book of Acts as we begin. And this morning, unstoppable forward momentum, Holy Spirit living, Acts 1, Holy Spirit-infused faith. Acts chapter 1 begins this way. The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven after he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he also presented himself alive, his sufferings by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days, speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God, gathering them together, commanding them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait. For 40 days, from the time in which Jesus was resurrected and the time in which he was ascended, that 40-day period of time, he told his disciples to come to Jerusalem and wait, something powerful is about to happen. Something amazing, something historical, something that they needed in order to be able to perform the mission that he called them to. So wait, don't move. What I'm about to say is going to change your lives. And Jesus said, I come to you as the resurrected Lord. Here are the convincing proofs. Here I am. But even more important than my resurrection in your daily living, your resurrection daily living is the power of the Spirit. You must have it. And so Jesus says, wait here because something has been promised to you. 
It was promised to you back in the Gospels. In fact, in all four of the Gospels, John says that I come to you and I baptize you with water, but one is coming who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And in two accounts, Holy Spirit and fire. But here, Luke mentions, you heard from me, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. When they came together and they were talking, Lord, is it this time you're restoring the kingdom of God? They thought, everything's going to happen. The kingdom of God is coming to earth. Israel's to be restored. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. You don't know the future. You don't know the times and epics which the Father has fixed for his own authority. You don't know what's going to happen next. All you need to know is that the Holy Spirit is coming. And the Holy Spirit is going to come powerfully and things are going to start happening. You will receive the Holy Spirit with power when he comes upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the remotest parts of the earth. Acts 1.8. Becomes now the most important verse in the book of Acts, describing the theme of Acts that you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you're going to be my witness all throughout the whole world. And the book of Acts is describing how the Holy Spirit empowered these believers, and that actually happened. And they gathered together, and they waited. And then it says in verse 9, he was lifted up. Jesus ascended. He was gone. His ministry was done. His work had been completed. Salvation had come. And now they were waiting, and he had ascended, and he said he'd promised to leave them one, a helper, a paraclete, an advocate the Holy Spirit. And so they waited. Verse 12, they returned to Jerusalem. And they were obedient. They waited and they went to an upper room, it says, where they were staying. And Peter and John and James and Andrew and Philip and all the disciples and all the other disciples. And there were with them women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and and his brothers. And so the whole gang was there. All of the followers of Jesus, men and women, given their life to Christ, devoted themselves to Jesus, who's now ascended, and they're waiting in the upper room for this event, Acts 1-8, the Holy Spirit. And they devoted themselves to prayer. And then at this time, verse 15, Peter stands in the midst of the brethren, gathering them together, about 120 people. It says, brethren, the scripture has been fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold from the mouth of David concerning Judas. He raises the name Judas the one who betrayed Christ, the one who is no longer with them. And so he says and reminds them that who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus, for he counted among us and received his share in the ministry. Now this man acquired a field, the price of wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all of his intestines gushed out. Speaking of Judas, after he betrayed Jesus, received the 30 pieces of silver, and it says that he went desired to buy a property, a farm. Probably didn't get to because he returned the silver, but they couldn't put that silver back into into the, the coffers. They couldn't put it back into the temple, so they went out and bought the field that Judas wanted. And it became, it says in verse 4, let his homestead be made desolate, and let no one dwell in it, and let another man take his office. And so the prophecy has been fulfilled here. The Judas, the one who betrayed Jesus, 
who had ulterior motives is a reminder to the early church. And he's now gone. And the, the money that he received went to buy a field that was never used for any other purpose other than maybe a burial ground. Therefore, it is necessary now for the men who accompanied us at this time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us at the beginning with the baptism of John, that one must take his place, verse 22, and become a witness with the resurrection. And so they put forward two names, Joseph and Matthias, and they prayed and chose Matthias. And there's chapter 1. And what we learn in chapter 1 is that this intoxicating, powerful, life-changing faith requires four things. And here they are. A baptism of the Holy Spirit, a unified prayer, the community coming together to pray, a reminder not to be tethered to this world, the life of Judas, and fourth, godly leadership. They needed a 12 to remind them of the resurrection, to lead them. And we find all four of those are necessary if we are to have this powerful kind of faith that we see in the book of Acts. As we begin chapter 1, all of these themes will be repeated over and over and over again throughout the book. And so let's look at these four things as we begin. We begin with the most important, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Jesus reminds them that John spoke of a baptism of water, which was a preparation baptism. To prepare the people for one coming, Jesus would come and he would baptize them with the Holy Spirit. And sure enough, this event would happen in just a few days. In fact, Jesus says in Acts 1.8, you shall receive this power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Another word, similar to that of being baptized in the Spirit, to this Holy Spirit comes upon you. Many days from now, you're going to receive this Holy Spirit. And sure enough, in Acts chapter 2, they were gathered together. Pentecost was upon them. Many people from all different regions, different backgrounds, different languages, all came into Jerusalem for this event. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind. It filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them as tongues as distributed on them. And they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Holy Spirit was giving them utterances. Something powerful, historic just happened. We're going to get to that next week. It's Pentecost. It's what Jesus is predicting in Acts chapter 1. That the Holy Spirit is going to be sent an historical event in the life of the early church. It happened once. It's called Pentecost. The Holy Spirit came, powerful, rested upon the believers, and they became these mighty witness, members, individuals, to be a witness for Christ. But what I want you to see is this idea of what it means to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. We see it there. We see it here in Acts chapter 1, that you will be baptized by the Spirit. You shall receive power in the Holy Spirit. And I find three things that are important. First of all, just a brief reminder of who the Holy Spirit is. We need to understand that the Holy Spirit is part of the Trinity. And for us living in a 21st century, many of us don't know who the Holy Spirit is. We live a lot of times without the full knowledge and experience of the third person of the Trinity. 
that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are all part of our faith. And we oftentimes live not a Trinitarian faith, but we live a one-dimensional faith. We believe sometimes even a, a pagan version of God that God sits somewhere in the mountains with a great beard and he judges people. And we have this weird pagan view of God. And then sometimes we, we, we include Jesus into this, this relationship and now we have a two-dimensional relationship with God that we believe God is our Father and we believe that Jesus is our Savior, but we have no room for Jesus or, or God is our Holy Spirit. And I want to remind you that the Holy Spirit is God. There is one God. We worship one God in three persons. In Genesis chapter 12, we are reminded that the earth was formless and void and darkness was over the surface of the earth and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface. The Spirit of God was involved in creation. In fact, in Matthew chapter 3, verse 16, we find all three of them coming together in Jesus' own personal baptism. When Jesus goes under the water and comes out, it says that when he came out of the water, behold, the heavens were open, and he saw the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit came upon Jesus, and then the Father speaks. In fact, all throughout the New Testament, we have this reference to the Spirit of glory, the Spirit of God. He is a member of the Trinity. He is God. And oftentimes we, as James Dunn says in this massive 850-page book, God's Empowering Presence, says the Spirit is largely marginalized in our actual life together with community faith. We live an axless Christian life. An axless Christian life is a life where we do not understand the purpose and the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus says, not many days from now, disciples, you're going to receive the power of the Spirit. You're going to be baptized in the Spirit. So what is that? How does the Spirit baptize? Well, three things here I want to point out. The first is this idea of baptizo or baptism. What does it mean to be baptized in the Spirit? It's the same thing to be filled with the Spirit. It's the same thing as that the Spirit will come upon you. All of them are used interchangeably in Acts and we find it here in Acts 1.8, that this baptism will happen. Now, not to be confused with bapto, which is the clearest example showing simply that something is dipped into something else. That's the idea, and it actually comes from 200 B.C. Nicander, who lived about 200 B.C., is a recipe for making pickles. And we get the use of these Greek words. It's helpful for us to understand because he talks about the vegetable should first be bapto, dipped into boiling water, and then baptized, baptizo, into a vinegar solution. There's a difference. It's dipped in and out of the hot water. That's bapto. Baptizo is it's immersed and left in a vinegar solution, and we all know what happens to a cucumber when it's immersed and left in baptizo. It's inside the vinegar solution. It becomes a pickle. It's transformed by the solution. That's what Jesus is promising that this Holy Spirit will come and transform your life. You will be a different person. You will act differently, think differently, live differently. You will be different. It's a life infused with the powerful divine working of the Holy Spirit. It was promised in Acts. Jesus himself in John 7, 37 even says that it's this living water, he's speaking of the Holy Spirit, will come. He will come in John 7, 37. 
In fact, in John 14, 15, and John 16, he says, I promise to send you a helper who is the Holy Spirit. This is the one. Jesus prepared his disciples for this moment. And for us as believers now living in the 21st century, what I want to point out to you is though this is an historic event, this also represents an event that happens in your life when you come to Christ. The moment you put your faith and trust in Christ, something happens. You receive the Holy Spirit. You're baptized in the Spirit. It's an event that happens as soon as you put your confidence and faith in Christ. And then what follows is a water baptism to symbolize this spiritual baptism when the Holy Spirit comes into you. How do I know that? 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. That we all are baptized into the body of Christ through the Holy Spirit. Paul references the fact that when you come into the body through conversion into a relationship with Christ, you're baptized into this one spirit. It happens. It's a one-time event. It's an historic event. It's going to happen in Pentecost. It's going to be this one powerful event that we can look back in history and say, this is now inaugural. This is a time period in history where the Holy Spirit will take the church on and will lead the church in forward momentum. It's inaugural. It's, it's historic. It's the beginning of a new era. But it's also an event that happens for every believer. So as you sit here and you think about it, do I have the Holy Spirit? Have I been baptized? Yes, if you know Christ, you've been baptized into this Spirit. It's happened for you. It's already taken place. It's the Holy Spirit that Jesus promised. It was good that I go because I leave you a helper. And you get baptized in this Holy Spirit. You're filled with the Holy Spirit. You're consumed by him. We know that we are a temple of the Holy Spirit. There's clear evidence that this happens at the moment of our salvation. And this is what Jesus is referring to. And so this event marks that experience for every believer. And it's true of you, it's true for me. But notice, I want you to also see something else in this, is that you shall receive the Holy Spirit, you're baptized in the Spirit, so that you might become my witness. Do you see that in Acts 1-8? To be my witness, maturion, it literally means to be the one who can testify or tell the story through your life of the risen Christ. You're telling the story through your life as a witness. Oftentimes, people point out the fact that maturion is close to martyr, where we get the word martyr. In fact, oftentimes, if we are to be a clear witness of Jesus, something has to die within us. If all they see when they look at us is us, they don't see Jesus. So we have to get out of the way so they can see Jesus. Something has to happen, and that's the power of the Spirit working through our lives in a powerful way where they see, not you, they see Jesus. And the third thing that I see is that you will be my witness. And notice these regions in Acts 1-8, in Jerusalem, right there locally, you will be my witness. In Judea, Samaria, moving out north into the northern regions of Israel, and then Palestine, and then beyond the remotest parts of the earth, which is all the Mediterranean region all the way to Rome, as Paul said, and he desired even to go to Spain. And to push out believers, and it was this forward momentum, you'll be my witness when you're filled with the Spirit to go into all these regions. And for us today, I tell you, I think we think that two miles away is a long way. We really do. 
Bill was riding his, his uh, uh, road bike as he does around PV and ran into a couple people from our church and he was, and they said, hey Bill, you're a long way from home, my gosh. He was two miles from home. <laughs> two miles from home is a long way from home? Are you kidding me? We have a mentality, don't we, oftentimes of thinking that way, that two miles is a long way away from here. And yet, it's just two miles. I remember when I went into commercial real estate, I was given a, a, a Thomas guide. And you would buy these Thomas guides every year, and they would update it. And that was your Google Maps. It was in a book. And it was a thick book, and it was wire-bound so that you could open up it, and you could sit there and drive and try to find out where you're going. And, and you, you relied on the Thomas guide. So I'm in real estate. I'm a new employee, and I've been given a, a role to go pick something up and Rancho Cucamonga. Well, I grew up in Palos Verdes. I thought Rancho Cucamonga was in Africa. I really did. I am not making that up. I had to go to my Thomas guy, looked up the fact that it really is in the Los Angeles region. It's right on, you just go out the 605, as I believe. I've been by it many times on my way to Idaho and other places, but never been to Rancho Cucamonga. It's like, how do we get into this mentality that we can't get out and we can't see a larger world. And sometimes we, we feel like we're, we're so t closed into our culture and our, our little world that we haven't seen what Jesus is really saying. That he is calling us to be witnesses throughout the whole world. It's like James going to Switzerland to impact young pastors that are going to go all, through, all throughout Switzerland and Europe. So he's now in another country training young men and women to have an influence on the rest of the world. Let me tell you a story. It's a remarkable story. I had to look at very different variations of this story. In fact, I wasn't sure that it was actually a true story, even though I've actually been to this place. So I found it, spent several hours on this, so follow me. I found it in the Huffington Post, and the article was, When Jesus Comes, Everything Changes. And then I found it in the heartlander.wordpress. And the story all lines up. It's a true story. 1972, wealthy Egyptian businessman loses his $11,000 watch in the trash. It was found in the garbage city outside of town run by Coptic Christians. They've actually been there in Egypt. And it's a city full of thousands of people that collect the trash all throughout Cairo. And they bring the trash back to their city. And they recycle it and separate it. And they live there, educate their children, eat there, worship there. It's their life. It's their city among the garbage. It's an amazing place to visit. And so this young garbage collector found this watch. And the garbage man said when he returned it, my Christ told me to be honest until death. Later, the businessman would tell a reporter, I did not know Christ at the time, but I saw Christ in this man. He would later become a believer, and by 1978, Father Saman would be pastoring the largest church in the Middle East, the cave church in the garbage city outside of Cairo. 20, 30,000 people attended this church. It's this cave that they have literally built. They've, they've excavated and pulled out all the dirt and created a, an amphitheater. I found the actual transcription. It's translated... I was living in Cairo. I was a counselor in one of the big companies. I had lost one of my precious watches. It was very expensive, 
and I was very sad. One day I received a knock at my door, a man in a long, dirty dress, carrying a bag, asked me if I had lost something. I asked him how he knew that I would lost something. I was afraid of him. The garbage man told me he had asked all the people at all the apartment building, all around the apartment in the building, and everyone had denied that they had lost something. When I took the garbage from here while separating the garbage at home, I found something. So, sir, please tell me what you lost. I told him I lost a watch. He took it out and said, is this yours? I was shocked. I told him to please come in and ask him his name and where he lived. And I also asked him, why didn't you take this watch for yourself? And he replied, my Christ told me to be honest until death. You are a Christian. I asked him and he said, yes, I am. I didn't know Christ at the time, but I told him that I saw Christ in him. This watch was a very expensive watch. It cost me $11,000. I told the garbage collector, because of what you have done, your great example, I will worship the Christ you are worshiping. For the garbage man, it was not a full martyrdom. It was a death to self, a death to selfishness, and a life witness for Jesus. When he was invited in and asked the question, tell me about your faith, you're a Christian, that's being a witness. But so was returning the watch. And as he returned an $11,000 watch, he saw and witnessed a man come to Christ that became Father Simon, who pastors to this day 30,000 Coptic Christians in Egypt. So talk about being a witness. Talk about being a garbage collector and having an impact in the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus is talking about. You shall receive this power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you'll be a witness. You really will. Your life will be a witness. But I find a couple other things that I just want to highlight briefly with you about an intoxicating faith that we find in Acts. Not only were they prepared to receive the baptism of the Spirit that would change their life to make them witnesses, bold witnesses. And we find this all throughout Acts, by the way, filled with the Spirit to be a bold witness. Filled with the Spirit to be a bold witness. By the way, this baptism of the Spirit is a one-time event in your life. We are also reminded in Ephesians 5.18 to be filled with the Holy Spirit. We're to be constantly filled. And so, it's an interesting dynamic. It's both. It's both and. It's not one or the other. You receive the Spirit. You're baptized. The moment you come to Christ, Ephesians 5.18 commands you to continue to request the filling of the Spirit, and the Spirit comes upon you. It just keeps coming, Holy Spirit, fill me. Holy Spirit, I pray for your filling. Come upon, fill me in this moment to make me a bold witness for you. That's a legitimate prayer. The second thing I see in this passage is when they came to the upper room, it says that they were united with one mind, continually devoting themselves to the prayer. And it says they all gathered together. This is Luke's favorite word. He uses it ten times. It's only used one other time. But Luke has coined this phrase to be united, to be one mind. And I think the idea here, he actually, it's, 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 a, it's an interesting word because... Um, it, it brings together the idea of not simply that they were together in one place like we are today, but they were unified. They knew what they were praying about. They had the same idea. They were praying for the same thing. 
So they were unified in their prayer, and so they all knew the vision. They all had a desire and a similar desire, and they were praying for that. It's like the River Church. Over the last few weeks, we've been talking about our vision for expanding a ministry to our children so that more families could come in from our community and be ministered to. Another location so that we can continue to expand the impact of a church like this in other parts of the South Bay. An expanded ministry through River Hopes, our mission and outreach ministry, so that we might be equipped and ready and prepared to go out into our community in the greater Los Angeles and world to serve Christ. That's what we're praying about. That's our vision. That's what we're talking about. Unified in that kind of a prayer. And when it's unified, it, there's something powerful that happens. I just want to I, I highlight this, that, that there's something profound and powerful when we're all unified in prayer. It, it's, I, I thought of this word singularity, just popped into my head. Unified in singularity. And then I realized singularity really is a, is a term that's used in the kind of the space physics, quantum physics, and technological world. Actually, technological singularity is the hypothesis, the invention, that artificial superintelligence will abruptly trigger a runaway technological growth, resulting in unfathomable changes to human civilization. I just happen to be reading uh, Wired magazine. I don't normally read this magazine, but it has some great articles, and I saw this. It caught my attention. The Great Panic Tech, uh, tech Panic of 2017. This artificial intelligence, is it going to take away our jobs? Is it going to ruin society? In fact, the article goes on later to talk about how we learn to stop worrying and love the future, that there's real no evidence of that, even though Elon Musk did come out and say that we, are, we, are, we, have this, we live with an existential risk that AI will overpower us. And, and really, the, there's a big question. And, and these guys in Wired Magazine, several articles, talk about the fact that they don't see that right now as evidence. They see it as just simply enhancing our society, enhancing our productivity. But it's this idea that at some point, the singularity, something comes together and something happens powerfully. We find the word singularity also used when we're talking about black holes and gravitational singularity when it all comes together in a black hole and something powerful happens. And that's what I'm talking about in prayer. When we devote ourselves in united prayer, something, ha the singularity happens and something powerful takes place. God will change things. I believe it. The third thing I see it in terms of an intoxicating faith, really three and four go together. And three or four, and I've switched the order, untethered from the world living and godly leadership. I put them together because as they lost Judas, they picked up another leader. And what I find here is the story of Judas, and Luke mentions the story about him betraying Jesus and buying the field and then dying and the, all that horrible stuff that happens to him. We find that in the account here in Acts 1. And I'm thinking, why? Why would you add all this information about Judas other than to remind the early church community how different we want to live from the way Judas lived? G Judas had an agenda for Jesus rather than seeing what Jesus could do in Judas. He wanted Jesus to do something for him. He was always about trying to get Jesus 
to do something for him. And in the end, when Jesus didn't do what he wanted, he betrayed him, took the money, and bought what he really wanted, a farm. That's what Judas wanted. He was tethered by the world. And what we find in Acts is a totally different kind of community. What we find in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4 and Acts chapter 6 is a kind of community that literally gave up everything it had. It had property, sell it, give it to the poor. It was willing to say, do you have a need? I'm going to meet that need. I have resources, I can, I'm going to provide. They, they, they opened up their arms and said, what I have is yours. That was the early church community, which was quite different from the way Judas lived his life. So it's a reminder of being untethered by the world. That's the kind of life we live, and we have an intoxicating faith as a result. And the final thing is, when Matthias was chosen, it was very important they found another individual to fill the role of leadership. Why? Because leadership in the early church kept them on mission. In Acts chapter 6, when everything was falling apart and people had needs and, and there were people going without needs, the leadership came together and chose individuals from among the church to begin to serve in various ways so that the mission could continue on. Leadership is essential, essential to the mission of the church. And if we are to have a kind of faith that is going to be intoxicating, powerful, and enduring, it's the kind of faith that, first of all, it's a faith that's baptized by the Holy Spirit. Unified in prayer, we are untethered by the world, and we are committed to raising up leaders to meet the needs of the church. That's the early church. As I close, in 1651, Francis Fenelon was born. In the 1970s, Cairo was changed by one man, Father Samar. We live in the 21st century. It can happen again. It can happen again. Do we really believe that? Is that the kind of faith we want? I believe it can happen. Are we unified in that? Let's pray. Father, our desire is to be unified, devoted to the inworking of the Holy Spirit, untethered by the world, devoted to you, Lord to step up and say, I, want to des I desire to be a leader in the church today to meet the needs, the ever-increasing needs. It's the kind of life I want to live. It's a greater story. It's a bigger, more grander way to live and invest your life. I, I desire that, Lord. I desire that this morning in the name of Jesus. Amen. Mm -hmm.